James 1, 18 through 27. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved sisters and brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a person who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that person will be blessed in his doing. The word of the Lord. It's a little bit tricky. Let me read those last couple of verses for us. Uh, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right. So I am uh, Davis Mooney, and I'm one of the other pastoral interns here at Central Weston Church. And as Matt said, Eric is out of town uh, this weekend, and so I get to fill in for him and continue this series on James. Uh, it's a great book, and I'm really excited to share it with you all today. Uh, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our ears to hear it, and I pray that you would open my mouth to speak. Uh, we praise you and thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, back in the 1950s and 60s, many of the most popular short stories were these really nice, gentle stories that often had happy endings, uh, but Flannery O'Connor's stories were different. She was a Catholic woman and wanted to reflect Catholic theology in her stories, but they often contain these really disturbing elements and can be quite difficult to read. Uh, a lot of her characters are deeply morally flawed people who slowly undergo change throughout the course of the stories. Well, when she was asked why she wrote this way, even though she was a Christian, she said, to the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. O'Connor was writing to an audience that she felt was slowly drifting into a decay, and she wanted to wake them up. The passage that we're going to look at today has some startling elements. James says that his, his readers can be deceived, that they can think that they're one thing, but truly be another thing, and he wants them to be unstained from the world. <clears throat> James is writing to wake his audience up to the truth of the gospel. 
One commentator says, A thing as potent as the new birth, if it has taken place, cannot be hidden. It cannot fail to make its presence felt. To have the life of God in us and to remain unchanged is unthinkable. James was writing to a group of Christians who knew the gospel, but they weren't living it out. It wasn't making a significant difference in their lives. They were in danger of thinking that as long as they weren't actively disobeying God's word, then they were doing everything that God commanded. But James writes to them, and he says that a passive religion, one that's dormant, is, doesn't really mean much. And in a startling way, he says that it's worthless. Now, I think this message is extremely relevant for us today. Some of us here are Christians, and we know the truths of the gospel, and we're trying to live that out. But if you're anything like me, there are times when uh, I think that as long as I read my Bible and pray and go to church, then I'm fulfilling my Christian duty. And of course, those are good and beautiful things, but there's, very, there's often very little overlap between our life and our day-to-day lives and our faith. So James writes to us and he says, no, we're called to a faith that permeates through every aspect of our lives and of our behavior. Now, others of us here may not be Christians, and we may be exploring the, the, the truth of the gospel. And you may read this passage, and you may say, aha, I knew it. Christianity is just all a bunch of stuff that I have to do. It's just a checklist that I have to check off. But actually what James is going to show us is that it's only by God's grace and action in our lives. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my spot. It's only by God's grace and action in our lives that he frees us and enables us to follow him. And so he lays the foundation of this passage in verse 18. That's why we've included it here. In verse 18, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what he means there is that God uses the truth of the gospel, his, God's, the good news of God's startling love for us, his word of truth, to grow us into the whole and mature people that he's created us to be. He's, in, he's inspiring us to a, a faith that is revealed in action. What James says here is almost copy and pasted from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Uh, there, Jesus talks about how he came to inaugurate God's kingdom, and he came to fulfill God's word. He comes to bring about the righteousness and wholeness that is required in God's word and that James points us to here. I would encourage you to go read the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon and kind of compare these two passages. So what we're going to see in this passage is that because God graciously gives us his word, we're called to grow up into whole and mature Christians by doing and obeying that word. And so we're, we're going to see that we're called to respond to God's word of truth by doing three things. We're called to be quick to listen. We're called to do what the word says. And we're called to practice pure religion. And uh, just as an aside, those three points are taken from a commentary on James by George Stulak, who has uh, written, or he's uh, preached at this church before. So first, we're going to see that we're called to be quick to listen. And we see this in verses 19 through 21. And it seems like a strange transition. James has been talking in verse 18 about how God gives us new birth. But then he says that we're called to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But what we're going to see when we make it to chapter 3 is that James sees a connection between God's gift of wisdom and how his people are called to speak. 
And so James is foreshadowing that here, and he makes a connection between God's gift of the word of truth and how we listen and speak and express our anger. Those who God has made alive to the gospel will hear God's word in the Bible, and they will also hear and listen to those around them. They'll listen before they speak, and they'll think through their words before they say them. Now, there have been many, many times in my life where I've, I have spoken by reacting rather than thinking through my words and immediately regretted it. Uh, I think, uh, and this encouragement to be slow to speak is all throughout the Bible. Uh, I think of passages in Proverbs which say things like, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Those who have been given new life through the gospel are called to listen to others and to speak wisely and helpfully to them. And then James says that we should be slow to anger. And this is a tough one for us. I need to hear this, especially while I'm driving. Uh, <laughs> James says that anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And it's a little bit of a funny phrase there, the righteousness of God. But the way that he's using that in this context is it's the standard of God for his people. So James's point here is simple. It's that human anger doesn't produce behavior that is pleasing to God. When we're angry, we think harmful things about others, and we forget that those who have hurt us or who annoy us are made in the image of God just, the, just like we are. And ultimately, we forget that justice and righteousness belong to God alone. Now, just as an aside, I don't think that James is telling us not to be angry. He's saying be slow to anger. There are things in this world which should anger us, but we must never forget that those who live in light of the gospel, which is the gracious forgiveness of God, should be slow to anger and quick to forgive those around them. Then in verse 21, James does an interesting thing here. He says, put away uh, all filthiness. And uh, the phrase there, put away, it could also be translated as take off. It's the imagery of like clothing. Like if you've been out in the yard or in the garden working, you take off your dirty shirt. And we see this multiple times in the Bible, but it's almost always followed with put on. It's like take off the bad things like sin and put on the good things. But that's not exactly what James does here. What he does is he says, put away all filthiness and receive with meekness the implanted word. God has graciously implanted his word in the people that he saves, and they're called to receive that word with meekness. And meekness here, it's, it's humility. It's submissive. It understands that everything that it receives is dependent on someone else. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Believers are called to humbly receive God's word in their lives, and they're called to humbly allow that word to do its work in their hearts. And as we do, we're actually being the first fruits of God's work and creation. Now, when I think of someone who is uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, I think of my campus minister at NC State, Chuck Askew. Uh, so some of you may know, but my dad passed away very suddenly during my junior year of high school. And so when I went off to college, uh, my family and I were certainly still grieving and processing his death. And uh, I got involved with this campus ministry and very quickly met Chuck. And I think he, he recognized that I needed a place to process and to grieve. And so Chuck met with me almost every Friday morning during my time at NC State for an hour at Brugger's Bagels. And Chuck would just listen to me and he would ask me how I was doing and how college was going and how my family was doing. 
And then he would encourage me and pray with me. And I never saw Chuck get angry either. Uh, So he would preach at our large group meetings on Tuesday nights, and he was a very gifted preacher. And then on Fridays, every once in a while, he would ask me, like, hey, what do you think of this sermon? Just to kind of see how his sermons were landing with a bunch of college students. And I would say, Chuck, I know that it was a great sermon, but I honestly have forgotten a whole lot about it. I'm so sorry. (laughs) And it would have been so easy for him to get angry. Uh, He could have just said, well, pay attention more or listen better which is actually what I needed to do. But instead, he would say, Davis, that's all right. I know that the Lord is at work in your heart, and he's growing you up in his word. Uh, Chuck's ministry to me is a lot of the reason why I wanted to come to seminary and hope to be a pastor one day. Chuck was a picture of, of what James talks about here. He had received God's implanted word, and it was shaping the way that he interacted with others. And by way of application, I want us to see in verses 19 and 20 that James's encouragement here to be slow to speak and, and, uh, or slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger, they're all lived out in community. They're all very relational things. Chuck was modeling this for me as we sat across the booth from each other on Friday mornings at Brugger's Bagels. As we humbly receive God's word planted in our hearts, we're called to watch and work as that uh, word produces fruit in our lives. We don't receive that word and continue on with an internalized faith that's separated off from the rest of our lives. No, James is calling us into community, and he's calling us to allow that word to shape the way that we, we interact with others. We're called to a faith that shapes our behavior. So we've seen we're called to be quick to listen And now we're going to see that we're called to do what the word says. We see this in verses 22 through 25. James goes on here to explain what it means to receive God's word. And he says that to receive the word is to do the word. James is calling believers not only to hear the word, but also to to hear and to do. Now, what does it mean to do the word? Well, it means to do the word, to obey it, to keep it, to follow it. And we'll see in a minute that this leads to freedom. But right here, James is calling believers to obey God's word. And again, he's reflecting Jesus' teaching here. In Luke 11, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. James is echoing Jesus as he, he calls believers not just to hear, but to be doers of the word as well. And hearers only, James says, could be deceiving themselves. And again, this is startling. A true believer, someone who is who's truly following Jesus, both hears and does the word. And once again, oh, if you aren't doing and obeying the word, if it has no practical implications in your life, then you might be deceiving yourself. Once again, James is following Jesus' teaching here. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this parable. And the parable is of a person who hears and does Jesus' word. He says that person is like a person who builds their house on a rock. And when the wind and the rains come, the house stands. But a person who only hears Jesus' words and goes away and doesn't do them is like a person who builds their house on the sand. When the wind and the rains pick up, the house washes away. So Jesus says that a faith that leads to the doing of God's word is a sure foundation. But not doing God's word after hearing it, that's a faith that might blow over when the wind and the rain of life picks up. Now, James uses a similar illustration here, but it would be a little bit easy to miss the meaning. He says that a person uh, who only hears God's word is like someone who looks intently in a mirror and goes away and forgets what they look like. 
Sure, I may look in the mirror and I may see a hair that's sticking up and I might fix it. That happens to me a lot. Uh, But then I go away and an hour later I'm going about my business and I've completely forgotten about the mirror. I've completely forgotten about my reflection. It doesn't matter to me anymore. It doesn't have any practical implications in my life. But in contrast, James says that true Christians are called to look into God's perfect law and to be a doer. Looking into God's perfect law should have massive implications for our lives. Once we are graciously saved by God's word, we should keep it and allow it to shape us into the whole humans that he's created us to be. And James here, he starts to use God's word and God's law interchangeably. We see this especially in verse 25, where James talks about um, God's word, the perfect law of liberty. Now, this is difficult for us. Uh, Many times our culture says that laws don't lead to freedom, that laws are restrictive, that the only authority that we need is ourselves. (laughs) But what James is saying here is that God's perfect word, it's the law of liberty. It's an interesting phrase, the law of liberty. But many commentators that I read said that James is referring to the Old Testament law, but only as it is interpreted, supplemented, and fulfilled by Jesus. We see this in in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes the Old Testament law and shows how he came to fulfill it and how it points believers to the the obedience that God requires. And ultimately, we see that uh, Jesus, who is described as the word of God, frees us from the bondage of sin. So James picks that up and he encourages believers to obey the perfect law, which reflects God's righteousness and calls believers to, to live as God's children who have been freed from the bondage of sin. One of my favorite examples of a doer of the word is Eric Little. Uh, He was a Scottish runner and sprinter in the 1920s. Some of you may have heard part of his story or seen part of his story in the movie Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie. Uh, Some of you, the music may be playing in your head right now. I'm sorry about that. It's classic. Um, Well, the movie tells the story of how Little uh, qualified for the 100-meter race in the 1924 Olympics. He was a sprinter, and that was his best event, and many people expected him to win. But he arrived at the Olympics and found out that the race was scheduled for a Sunday. And because of Little's Christian faith, he decided to obey God's word and to respect the Sabbath and not to run on a Sunday. But instead, he ran the 400-meter race later in the week. And uh, obviously, it was a longer race, and it wasn't his strongest event. But he ended up running it and winning it. And uh, he instantly became a national hero and a worldwide celebrity, not just because he won the 400-meter race, but also because of his refusal to to run the 100-meter race. So some of us have heard that story, but not many of us have heard the story of how Little went on to use his fame. He returned back to Scotland, and he started running these local races, which he would win easily, but he would use those to share his Christian faith with the people that were there. And ultimately, he felt called to go to China and do missions work in the country where he was born. But while he was there, a few years after he arrived, the Japanese invaded, and they, enforced, or they, they forced all foreigners to live in internment camps. And later, people who were in the camp with Eric talked about how tirelessly he continued to minister to those around him. And he actually ended up dying in the camp of an inoperable brain tumor just a few months before World War II ended. 
But uh, actually, before the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the Chinese government released a statement, and they revealed that during World War II, Eric had been offered freedom as part of a prisoner exchange deal between Japan and Britain, but he had given up his spot to a pregnant woman. Sorry. Uh, Eric knew that God had saved him through the love of Christ. And he, he was famous for obeying God's word, but he used that fame to point others to Christ so that they may live. That's the kind of faith that we're called to. When God graciously saves us, we're called to both hear and to do his word. His word shows us his righteousness, and it shows how we're called to strive for that righteousness. And it shows how God has forgiven us our sins through Christ and how it frees us from the bondage of sin. And so we're called to do and to obey God's word. And doing God's word is actually a great diagnostic for our spiritual condition. Are we those who only hear God's word and go away and do nothing about it? Or are we those who live in light of the forgiveness and the freedom that we've been given and respond to God by, by doing and following his word? But what is it, how, how are we called to do God's word? What does that look like in our, in our day-to-day lives? Now, for some of us, it may mean actually looking a lot like Eric Little, to uh, take a break from work on Sundays and to respect the Sabbath. Uh, for others of us, it may mean asking forgiveness uh, from someone we have hurt. Or for others of us, it may mean giving forgiveness to someone who has hurt us. There are countless ways to be doers of God's word because his word is a guide for all of life. But I would encourage us to ask the Lord to reveal to us the way that we can be doers and not simply hearers of his word. So we've seen that we're called to be quick to listen and to do what the word says. And now in verse 27, we're going to see, verses 26 and 27, that we're called to practice pure religion. So James starts talking about religion a little bit here, which is actually pretty rare in the New Testament. Uh, But the way that he's using religion here is very similar to the way that we use it. One commentator says that religion is the specific ways which a heart relationship to God is expressed in our lives. And this fits the theme of the passage extremely well. How does God's gracious action, how should it affect our lives and our behavior? Now, James says that pure religion consists of a bridled tongue, care for the orphan and the widow, and uh, a desire to be unstained from the world. And this is no, by no means an exhaustive list. But what James is doing here is he's picking up very practical things which God cares about. That's actually why he says God the Father in verse 27. What James is calling us to do is to be imitators of the Father, to care about the things that God cares about. Ultimately, practicing pure religion is just that, caring about what God cares about. So first, James says we're called to have a bridled tongue. And again, that one's tricky for us. Uh, The imagery he's using there is of a horse which is controlled by a bridle. Uh, A well-trained horse will go anywhere the rider wants it to go through the bridle. So James is saying that we're called to to train our tongues and to speak in a way that is uplifting and helpful to those around us. James makes this connection between the tongue and the heart here. Uh, He says that uh, anyone who does not bridle his tongue or tame their tongue might be deceiving their heart. They're deceiving their heart. And again, he's picking up Jesus here. In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus says, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James calls his readers to examine their hearts by the way that they speak. And a person whose heart is changing because of God's gracious work in their lives will speak in in a way that reflects that. 
And if our heart condition and, our, and if our speech don't match, then we may seriously need to examine ourselves. Now, second, James says that pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction or in their distress. And uh, the word visit there could also be translated as to look after or to care for. It's an action, and it's a very specific action. Now, in the time that James was writing, uh, most often widows and orphans were the helpless in society. Uh, widows or orphans, when their parents were, were not around, had no way to provide for themselves. And similarly, widows, when their husbands passed away, often had very little means of income to provide for themselves and their families. They were the helpless in society. So James says that true religion, a heart that is responding to God's love, will care for the helpless. Someone that's practicing pure religion will understand that before God, they are helpless to save themselves and that everything that we have is, is, is from God. And so someone who's practicing pure religion will, will be willing to, sh to share their time and their resources with those who are helpless, with the widow and the orphan. And this is a reflection of what God the Father cares about. Uh, in Deuteronomy 10:17, it says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In Deuteronomy 24, God commands his people to leave a portion of their harvests so that the widow and the orphan can come and share in that harvest. And in Psalm 146, it says that God upholds the widow and the orphan. So God cares about the orphan and the widow and the helpless. And James says that God's people should too. Finally, James says that someone with pure religion will keep themselves unstained from the world. And again, this is a little bit of a funny phrase. We don't hear this a whole lot. But the way that James is using the world here, one commentator says, the world is an ungodly worldview and lifestyle that characterize human life and its estrangement from the creator. The world is resistant to the lordship of Christ in our lives. And James says that we should be unstained from the world. And again, we see how James reflects this, or how Jesus reflects this. On the night before his death, he prays to the Father for his disciples, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, your tr in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, we need to notice that neither Jesus nor James says that we should totally separate ourselves from the world. In fact, Jesus sends his disciples into the world. But as they go, as, as James's readers go into the world, they're called not to live as the world calls them to live, not to be swayed by sin, but rather to be equipped with the Father's word of truth and to spread the good news of his love throughout the world. Now, practicing pure religion, an outward action that reveals an inward conviction, is reflecting God's love to the world. In our own little way, it's imitating what God the Father cares about. It's kind of like Phil Mickelson. So Phil Mickelson is a professional golfer, and uh, his nickname is Lefty. And uh, his nickname is Lefty because he golfs left-handed, but in everything else that he does, his right hand is dominant. The reason is that when uh, Phil was young, his dad was a passionate golfer. And so much so that when Phil was 18 months old, his dad had a golf hole built in their backyard. And so when he would go out to golf, Phil would go with him. And he started out by swinging right-handed because he wanted to imitate his dad. 
But he noticed that if he, both he and his dad were swinging right-handed, then his dad's back was facing to him, and he couldn't really see him. So he decided to try to swing left-handed so that he could face his dad and imitate him and mirror him as he swung. So that's, why he, that's how he learned to play golf, and that's why he swings left-handed now. He wanted to imitate his father. Uh, he's won 42 tournaments on the, the PGA Tour, so I'd say it worked. <laughs> uh, Friends, practicing pure religion is caring about what the Father cares about and acting accordingly. Now, we, of course, are not God. God is infinite and omniscient and omnipotent, and we are limited and finite beings. An 18-month-old just can't hit a golf ball the same way a 30-year-old can, but he wants to. When God frees us from the bondage of sin, he calls us and empowers us to be agents of change in the world, to care about the things that God cares about, and to reflect his love to those around us. So what's the application here? Well, it's actually very similar to the second point. Where do we see the things that God cares about, and where do we learn to imitate him? It's in his word. We're called to see the ways that the Lord is at work in the world. And we're called not just to hear those things, but to go out and do them as well, to share in that work. And James gives us a couple of, of examples of what that looks like here. So God cares about that his people's words reflect the gracious work that he is doing in their lives. So where are the places that we may need to keep a tighter rein on our tongues? Where are the places that we speak by reacting rather than listening and speaking graciously? God cares for the, help, the, the helpless, the outcast, the widow, and the orphan. So where are the places that we can care for the helpless? Where are the helpless in our communities that are walking in distress, and we can walk through that with them? God cares that his disciples and his followers go out into the world, but they remain unstained by it. So where are the places that we might be loving the world a little bit too much? What are the things that we may need to let go of in order to become agents of change in the world rather than allow the world to change us? Now, I know that these are hard things, and I know that many of us who are Christians are trying to do these things, and that's beautiful. Keep going. But we must never forget that it is only by God's grace and by his power and by his word that he enables us to do these things, that these aren't the things that save us. Rather, they're all a response to his word of truth. Now, as we close, because God graciously gives us his word, we're called to grow into maturity by doing and obeying that word. And as we close, I want to look back at verse 21, where James talks about the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, what does James mean by implanted there? Well, every commentator that I read said that James is pointing his readers back to Jeremiah 31, where God makes a new covenant with his people. And a covenant, we don't really use that language, but a covenant is way more personal than a contract, but it's way more committed than an ordinary relationship. A marriage is a covenant. So God makes this new covenant with his people in Jeremiah 31, and he says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When God has forgiven our sins, when he's wiped them away, he writes his law and his word on our hearts. He implants them on our hearts. It's only by God's gracious action that we are able to be doers of his word. Now, when is this promise fulfilled? Let me read you one more passage. 
Uh, when Mike does the communion here in just a minute, he's going to talk about a passage where Jesus, on the night before his death, he takes a cup of wine and he says to his disciples, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, it's Jesus who fills, fulfills this new covenant. It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf that God is able to say to us, I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sins no more. James reminds us that God, through Jesus, has written and implanted his word and his law on our hearts and that God, through Jesus, has empowered us to be doers of that word. That's what we're called to. Let's walk in that calling today. Let's pray.